Welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour, as usual, uh, this day and every weekday uh, this week, and almost every week. Once in a while, I have to be away from the microphone, but that hasn't been the case for a little while now. And that means we do have it live. We can uh, we can interact in real time. You can call into the program and talk to me. I'll talk to you. If you have questions about the Bible or about the Christian faith, uh, go ahead and give me a call. The number is 844-484-5737. If you missed that, here it comes again. 844-484-5737. And I'm broadcasting today from the studios of KXEX AM 1550 in uh, the Fresno area. It's in Clovis. And... uh, and they've, uh, I, I actually spoke here at the studio to a group of, uh, quite a large group of people here. Uh, it must have been Wednesday night last week. And in the meantime, I've been up in the Sacramento area and Fresno area, and now I'm on my way home. Uh, and this is my last stop before home. So they've opened the studios for me to broadcast here. And uh, it's a wonderful group of people here. Um, okay, we're going to go to the phones right now and talk to Barbara. Calling from Michigan. Hi, Barbara. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Oh, hi, Steve. I just wanted to make a, a comment about a scripture and tie something to the polit- something political. Um, you know, okay. the Lord made the the Lord made the woman the weaker vessel, and the weaker vessel should not be in the highest position of the world. And if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and He giveth all liberally. And consider what I say, and let the Lord give the understanding. I just wanted to say that. Uh, okay, so you're just stating an opinion. Okay, well, thank you for your yeah. call, brother, sister. God bless you. Okay, we'll talk to Tony in Torrance, California. Welcome to the Narrow Path, Tony. Uh, hi, Steve. Uh, I'll ask my question and then take the answer off the air. Um, okay. At my church, we're um, at my church. We're studying um, Ephesians uh, chapter five, verses twenty-one to Ephesians six four. Uh, we're okay. talking about family relationships. Right. And um in the and it's talking about, you know, being submissive, uh women and husbands loving their wives. In the back of the book it asks two interesting questions that I thought I would ask you your opinion. Number one, um, can you love someone if you do not respect them? Because at the end of chapter five it says that women uh wives should respect their husbands. And then the second question that they ask is um, if a partner or a spouse is being abusive um, or demeaning uh, to another spouse, um, primarily, I guess, the man, um, should the wife be submissive um, to that husband? So those are the two questions that I have. Okay, great. I appreciate I appreciate you calling with that, and I'll be glad to address that or uh, can the can, can a wife or should a wife or how can a wife uh, love or can a man love uh, somebody that is not respectable I think is what you were suggesting if they if, if you can't uh, respect them I think is what your question was uh, can you still love my them? question go ahead I'm sorry Steve. My, my, my question was if a spouse if a uh, wife does not respect her husband like the scripture says. Oh, then can, can he love, love her? No, can she love him when she doesn't respect him? 
Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, that depends on what we call respect. If, she, if there are things about her husband that she disrespects, she can still respect him uh, as her husband in a sense. That doesn't mean she has to approve of or like or admire everything about him. But she, it's sort of like, uh, it's like saluting the uniform in a way. I mean, he's, he's the head of, of the family, according to God. And, uh, and so she, you know, she recognizes his role. If you were in the military and you had officers over you who were, you know, inferior people, people whose lives are kind of a mess and they, they have no control over their temper or their appetites, uh, you might not respect them, but you'll respect their authority uh, because they have, a, a, they're, they're ranked over you. Now, that would be true in any hierarchical situation. The Bible actually says that we should respect the king, but many kings are not very respectable. Now, respecting the king doesn't always mean we obey them completely because sometimes they might be so unrespectable that they command you to do things that God would not allow you to do, and you have to be civilly disobedient. But that doesn't mean that you just you just decide, okay, he's no king, he's no king. I don't recognize his position. Uh, there are times when you recognize a person's position, but you also recognize your obligation to obey God rather than man. Uh, but that you don't uh, you don't dethrone the king just because you uh, you have to obey God. Uh, you may actually you know suffer consequences for disobedience. But the point is that to uh, a woman, many women have husbands who are you know maybe alcoholic or they've got temper problems or they're addicted to you know something, and and the woman isn't. And so you know she's in a sense a lot more respectable than he is in her life, but she can still respect that he's her husband. And again, that doesn't mean she has to obey everything he says, especially if he requires her to do things that, that God would forbid. Uh, I do believe that wives sometimes have to say no to certain things their husband says for the same reason that uh, a disciple has to say no to the government about certain things. Just because somebody holds a position of authority doesn't mean that they, you know, everything they say or do is sanctioned by God, or that a Christian must do everything they say. But it does mean that a person still recognizes that they themselves hold a position uh, whose role is to uh, be submissive in general to the position of the other party. Uh, you see, it's, the easiest thing to do would be say, well, I'll respect my husband if he's respectable. And if he's not respectable, I'll just ignore him. I'll just pretend like he's not not an authority, because after all, he doesn't deserve my respect. Um, but you see, you respect somebody because God tells you to respect them. And uh, that, that doesn't mean in every case that you're going to do everything that pleases them. Now, can you love somebody that you don't respect? Yeah, yeah you can love, because mm -hmm. love means love means laying down your life for somebody. Love, a greater love has no one than this, and they lay down their lives. So... You lay down your prerogatives, you lay down your preferences, you, and so forth. You don't lay down your obedience to God, because that's not a negotiable. But, when it, but if your uh, dishonorable husband is uh, doing things, uh, requiring things that aren't disobedient to God, that they're just, that you'd rather not obey, uh, you know, the Christian's role, I believe, is to uh, submit their uh, their own will to the will of the person that God has said submit to this person with the with the uh, caveat that if they tell you to do something God forbids well you don't do that um, 
Now, your other position was if a uh, husband is abuser, uh, does the woman have to submit to him? Well, it's the same kind of thing. I mean, a, an abusive husband is dis, is not respectable. Is there, I mean, not all husbands who are hard to respect are abusers. But an abuser would certainly be in that category. It, uh, I don't respect a man who abuses his wife or his children or abuses anyone at all, for that matter. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there is a duty that all Christians have to honor those that God says to honor but to do so with uh, discrimination between, you know, what God's will is, what God has commanded, for example, and where that might be in conflict with the, what the uh, authority commands. So, it, in other words, it's not just so simple as just say, do everything this person says. The only person you can do that with is Jesus, because only Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. All other authorities that we have to submit to only have limited authorities that God has delegated to them, and, and within the sphere of their authority, we, we honor God by, by honoring their authority. But when they're acting outside that sphere, well, then, then they, you know, we have to obey God rather than man. So uh, a person, a woman is going to be very much tempted not to love a husband who's abusive to her, not to submit to a husband who's abusive to her. And men, by the way, uh, it, women might think this is a problem uh, that they, uh, a burden they have to bear, a cross they have to bear. Uh, it, the shoe is often on the other foot. Often, a very loving, and supportive, and uh, godly husband has a wife who's uh, destroying the family, and uh, he has to honor her. He has to give her honor as the weaker vessel. Peter said in First Peter three six or seven, and so uh, you know it's it's both parties are capable of being in a hard situation with their partner. And both are supposed to be sacrificially uh, laying down their lives for the benefit of the other person. And, and either party, the husband or the wife, might have a spouse who is not responsive to, good, uh, to a good husband or to a good wife and, and who has, uh, uh, you know, got many problems about them. I, I remember uh, a man who had a wife that was pretty much out of control and he was a godly man, uh, he was saying to, his, to God, you know, you said I have to honor my wife. How can I honor my wife when she's, frankly, she's a dishonorable person? And he, he felt that God said to him, uh, you honor her not because she's honorable. You honor her because you, do, you honor me by doing that, because I told you to do it. You honor me by honoring her. The same thing would be true of a wife who has a dishonorable husband. She honors her husband because that's what God says to do. But, but obviously, there's a, there's a limit to what you owe to any human being because uh, you owe God something, first of all. In fact, that's pretty much what Jesus was saying, too, when he said, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were asking whether they should give Caesar uh, you know, his tribute money, which they'd rather not. And Jesus said, well, it's got Caesar's face on it. Looks like it came from him. Give it back to him. The word render doesn't mean give. It means give back. The word render means to return something to someone. So he said, well, that's Caesar's face, isn't it? So give him his face back. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. But you give to God what belongs to him. And so Jesus did indicate that even the pagan Caesars had some measure of authority and a right to require certain things, but not everything. It's God, ultimately, who has the right to reclaim, uh, you know, his claim on you. And so, anyway, husbands and wives obviously are given different instructions, 
but each of them has their own special challenges in fulfilling those instructions, especially if either of them is married to somebody who's uh, hard to live with or so hard to respect. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Let's talk to uh, Damon from Florida. Damon, welcome to The Narrow Path. Uh, I have a question, kind of general question. Um, I'll ask it, and then I'll listen off air. Um, okay. As a Christian, uh, based on your understanding of scriptures, um, can you lose your salvation? I don't believe that salvation is secure beyond the point of apostasy. In other words, if you have been a follower of Christ and you apostatize, uh, there can't be any salvation for an apostate because eternal life is in Christ. That's what the Bible says. It says God in, in 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says God has given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. So we are given the gift of eternal life in Jesus. And according to Jesus himself in John 15, we are required to abide or remain in him. And if we remain in him, then we have that eternal life. And, and by the way, we can be very imperfect in many respects and very weak. And we can uh, stumble in many things, like James said, and still be abiding in Christ because we're still trusting in him. We're still seeking to be his followers. But when a person decides, I'm not going to trust Christ anymore, I'm not going to remain uh, a disciple of Jesus, I don't want to be his follower anymore, that decision is what we call apostasy. And when someone apostatizes and they depart from Christ, of course, you can't leave Jesus and take your salvation with you. Uh, the salvation is in him. You are saved as you are in him. So you remain in him. You remain eternally secure. I believe in eternal security, but I believe it's conditional upon abiding in Christ. But uh, obviously, if you abandon Christ, you can't abandon Christ and, and, and maintain your salvation apart from him, because it's in him. Okay? You there? Yeah, that, so, yeah so it's, it's more of a, uh, you know, a deliberate decision by the believer to say, I re I'm rejecting God, rejecting Christ. I no right. longer want your salvation. Right, but, and they you know, might. Being they human, might. being a sinner, you know, yeah. you're going, like you said, you're going to stumble. That's right, we, we all stumble. We all stumble, and when we do, we don't abandon Christ in doing so. Now, on the other hand, sometimes people might abandon Christ without being conscious of it. It could be a gradual drifting away where they no longer care anything about Christ. And, you know, they haven't had a, a moment where they said, I guess I won't follow Jesus anymore. But they just walk away. The, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 at the beginning there talks about the danger of letting these things slip away. Like in the... the uh, the imagery he uses in the Greek language is uh, of a ship that's lost its anchorage and its moorings, and uh, you know it's kind of drifting away on the tide and doesn't sense it. Um, so, I mean, there are people who just decide, I'm tired of being a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. That would be apostasy. But there are also people who haven't really talked to themselves plainly about making such a decision, but it's, it's just, uh, first of all, they become lukewarm, and then they become apathetic, and then, and then it's no longer uh, a matter of concern to them to be obedient to Christ. In which case, they have also apostatized, but maybe without noticing it. You know, there are people uh, 
it says in Titus chapter 1, the last verse there says that these people uh, profess that they know God, but in their works they deny him. So denying Jesus isn't always a, a conscious um, choice that you would be able to say, hey, yeah, I, I now deny Jesus. But your works may show that you have, in effect, denied him by ceasing to walk with him. So abiding in Jesus is remaining a disciple of Jesus, uh, remaining a sheep, one of his sheep. He said he gives his sheep eternal life and they'll never perish. But he says in the same passage in John uh, uh, 10 that his sheep are those who hear his voice and follow him. So if I'm hearing his voice, if I'm following him, I, ca I classify as one of his sheep and he gives me eternal life. If I cease to hear him and follow him, I cease to be one of his sheep and only his sheep have eternal life. So, again, the eternal life is in him. If I leave him, the eternal life is still in him. I'm just not in him, and therefore I'm not participating in that which is in him. And that's what the vine and the branches, where, that's where Jesus said, remain in me or abide in me, comes from in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, but if a branch doesn't remain in me, it's cast forth and withers and dies and they throw it in the fire. Well, why is that? Because the, the life of the vine is in the branch while the branch is in the vine. But if the person doesn't remain in the vine, the branch doesn't remain in the vine, the, the vine still has eternal life. The, the life that the vine is giving up is, in fact, eternal life. And those who remain in Christ still have it. And Christ still has it. But you just don't have it anymore. It wasn't non-eternal life. It was eternal life. And it still is. You're just not engaged in it because you're not connected to Christ where that life is. It's in him. That's how we're to understand uh, security, I think. Okay, thank you. I, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate it. Okay, Damon, thanks for your call. Uh, Richard in Thousand Oaks, California is next. Richard, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Steve. I have a question Hi. about what is sometimes referred to as a second meaning, second description of some scripture verses. I want to look especially at Second Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where, where uh, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he talks about last days, but then in verse 5 he infers or seems to imply that, that he is really talking about Timothy's last days because Timothy will be alive in recognizing the people that he's being are being described. The same would be applying in uh, the Olivet Discourse where some people give a second meaning to what Christ is telling his four disciples. So maybe you could explain to me that second meaning principle. I'll get off and listen to you and have a good day. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your call. It's a good question. Um, well, in, in 2 Timothy, where Paul says, in the last days, such and such will happen, he is using a phrase, the last days, which usually is referring to the last, in my opinion, the last days of the old order the last days of the temple system. And, and therefore, the last days would be the days they were living in because the temple was about to be destroyed and the whole Jewish order was to be ended. On the other hand, there's nothing that would prevent them, uh, for Paul, from speaking of the last days of the world, too. But he probably isn't referring to both of those in the same passage. And uh, it'd be, in, in that particular case, it's difficult to tell if he is talking about the last days of the Jewish order, but, I mean, he very well could be. Or if he's talking about the last days of human history, which is obviously still future. Um, 
in most cases, it's evident from the context that it's talking about the last days of the Jewish order, and that might, of course, prejudice us toward thinking that's what it means in every case, including that case in First Tim, uh, Second Timothy three one, and following. Uh, as far as the Olivet Discourse goes, yeah, some people think that whole thing was fulfilled when the temple was destroyed. Some people think, uh, you know, part of it is. I, I personally believe part of it is. I believe uh, the first part of the Olivet Discourse is talking about uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, and then the last part is not. It, it's taken from another part of Jesus' life. Matthew has combined two different discourses on different subjects. And so when we look at the parallels in Luke, for example, the part about 70 A.D. is paralleled in Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse in Luke, and the part about the end times and the, uh, Jesus' coming is paralleled in Luke 17, a different, a different discourse. Matthew just kind of patches them together in his chapter. He does that kind of thing with the teachings of Jesus quite a bit. Now, um, there's also those uh, who say, well, the Olivet Discourse is about the destruction of Jerusalem because Jesus does predict that the temple would be destroyed. That's uh, how the discourse begins with him predicting that. And they would say, yes, it is about 70 AD, but it has a second fulfillment in the end times. In other words, the whole prophecy itself, they would say, is uh, in a sense, fulfilled in 70 AD, but it's got a second fulfillment that has not yet taken place. Now, I don't see evidence of that in the passage, and I don't take it that way myself. But, of course, what this raises is the question you ask, can a prophecy have two fulfillments? Can a prophecy have a fulfillment in one event, and still it is implied there's another fulfillment further out? Well, we do have examples in the Bible of Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled either in Old Testament times or uh, in New Testament times, uh, but which are, are identified in the New Testament as having a second fulfillment. I, many people would point to Isaiah 7, uh, 14, about the, the, uh, the woman who would have a child, the virgin who would bear a child, that there appears to be a a fulfillment of that in, in the next chapter of Isaiah, with Isaiah's own child. Everything, everything that is said about that child in uh, chapter 7 is also said about Isaiah's child in chapter 8, which makes it look like, you know, that's the fulfillment of the prediction. But the New Testament tells us, but Mary, being the virgin, having a child, is actually also a fulfillment of it, which I would say means the first fulfillment is a type and a shadow of the second. Uh, it's not so much a second fulfillment as it is a type and an antitype. That, that is, there are things in the Old Testament that are types of Christ, and Christ is the antitype. So you'll find a number of cases like that in the prophets, uh, where David says something about himself, and it is true about himself, but then the New Testament writers say that applies to Jesus. And it does, because David is a type of Jesus. Uh, there's also in... Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, a prophecy that seems to be fulfilled in Solomon. But uh, the New Testament quotes it as being fulfilled in Jesus. And again, Solomon is a type of Jesus. So we see some prophecies have a, a fulfillment that is a type and a shadow of an ultimate fulfillment. But we only would know about those ultimate fulfillments by being told about them in the New Testament. If the New Testament didn't say, and this is fulfilled here in the New Testament we would have assumed that the Old Testament fulfillment of the same prophecy was the only one. We, we can't really just assume that every event in the Old Testament that is a fulfillment of prophecy is, uh, is a type and a shadow of a later fulfillment. 
Now, here's the thing. I, I don't know of any case that we could document where there's a New Testament prophecy and it's fulfilled in New Testament times, and yet it's a type and a shadow of another New Testament event or New Testament times event. For example, if Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, that happened after he predicted it. It happened well in New Testament times. And yet to say, well, but it's going to happen again. It's got a secondary fulfillment also in New Testament times, in our, in our future. Well, if so, that's unprecedented. In the Old Testament, all the types, all the types in the Bible that we know of are in the Old Testament. And all the fulfillments of them are in the New. Uh, I don't know of anything, any prophecy in the New Testament that is, uh, has a New Testament early days fulfillment. And it's also a type of a later days fulfillment. A person would be free to, to take that view, but they would not be free to say that that's what the Bible reveals, because the Bible actually doesn't uh, reveal that at all. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing that tells us there's a second fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse. And people have wondered the same thing about the book of Revelation. Once they find out that so many things in Revelation actually were fulfilled in the past, they say, well, okay, I, have to, I guess so, but maybe, it's a, maybe there's a secondary fulfillment in the end times. Um, well, maybe there is, but it's entirely, uh, you know, guesswork. Uh, you, you can't teach as doctrine something the Bible doesn't teach as doctrine. So you can hold a private opinion and say, well, I think that's going to happen again. But that's nothing but a private opinion and entirely speculative. If it comes true, well and good, you guessed right. But, but you can't teach that because unless you're going to you know, teach your opinions instead of what the Bible says. So that'd be my answer to that. Hey, I need to take a break now. I hope, uh, hope that helps you. We have another half hour coming up, but at this point we'd like you to know that The Narrow Path is a listener-supported ministry. Uh, we don't have any commercials or sponsors, and uh, if you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. The website has all kinds of good stuff on it, and it's all free. So check it out, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. If you enjoy the Narrow Path radio program, you'd really like the resources at our website, thenarrowpath.com, where hundreds of biblical lectures and messages by our host, Steve Gregg, can be accessed without charge and listen to at your convenience. If you have not done so, visit the website, thenarrowpath.com, and discover all that is available for your learning pleasure. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call in. We'll talk about them. If you disagree with the host, you can call in, and we'll talk about that. The number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Our next caller today is Oliver calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Oliver, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hey, thanks, Steve. Thanks for your ministry. My question is, why, why in Ephesians can't Paul be talking about the apostles and the apostles only when he refers to the us and the we? 
at the beginning, in chapter 1, right? Yeah, in all of the other epistles, there's an obvious distinction. Like, you know, if, if, if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation sure, in Corinthians. Sure. Well, Paul, um, yeah, you're right. Paul sometimes does distinguish, as when he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, you know, urging you to be reconciled with God. Or, you know, he says, we are, uh, we are co-workers uh, with God, and you are his field, and you're his building, and so forth. So, yeah, the, some people do point that out, that there is a notable change of... Um, but there's some echo in here. I have to change something here. Um, that there's a notable change in the pronouns at the beginning of Ephesians, up to uh, a certain, uh, up through verse 12. He says, "We, we, 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 we," and then in verse 13 he says, "In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth." So some would say that that what Paul is doing is in the first 12 verses. He's actually talking about uh, things that pertain to him and his companions or the apostles. And then he says, and then you guys, too, a lot of this applies to you as well. Um, I don't see any reason why it cannot be so. I, I, I can see reasons why I wouldn't insist upon it being so, simply because the pronouns could be used either way in every case. And, uh, you know, it, I guess we have to decide how deliberate is Paul in changing the pronouns, or, or, or how much was it more or less unnoticed even by him? Because he could talk about the, to the other Christians as we, including them. And some people say that the we refers to the Jewish Christians, not just the apostles, but the Jewish Christians, and that you also means you Gentiles also now have trusted in him. And that's a possibility as well. So... Um, you know, I will say, when I teach Ephesians, it, it, this very question perplexes me, and I'm not quite sure how to resolve it or what to affirm about it. I, I simply would mention that there is a change in pronouns there. Um, however, I don't think that the things he says about we in verses 1 through 12 necessarily uh, only apply to the apostles or only apply to the Jewish Christians. He might be saying... Yeah, this applies to us Jewish Christians and us, and us apostles, and to you also, because you now also have come in. So that, you know, it would apply, you know, although he wasn't mentioning it every, in the first 12 verses, everything he said there also applies to them, because you also are now in this with us. Um, you know, uh, John says something like this. You know, he says that which in First John chapter 1, it says, you know, we beheld Jesus, we touched him, we heard him, and so forth. And he says, and we write to you so that you can enter into fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. So in other words, we've had this fellowship, and now you get to have it, too, with us. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I can see this n numerous possible ways, and, and I don't really think we have enough there to, to say with certainty that Paul's making a distinction between the privileges of the apostles in the first 12 verses and of ordinary Christians uh, as apart from that. It, I would think very possibly that rather than, if he is making a distinction, that the distinction is we Jewish Christians, you know, we, we came into all these blessings, and now you Gentiles have also come into it too. So I, I, just that would be more my inclination, but, uh, you know, it could be seen. As you're suggesting, maybe we are the apostles rather than we Jewish Christians. Yeah, but he does say we 
who were the first to put our hope in Christ, right? Right, which were the Jews. Yeah, the Jewish, the first fruits of the kingdom of God were the Jewish church, long before any okay, Gentiles. Okay, so you came. take that yeah. as the Jews and not the apostles, who literally were the first to start following. Right. Well, the, well, okay. right. The, 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 the gospel went to the Jews for many years before it came to the Gentiles, and uh, and and then when it did come to the Gentiles, it was even controversial among the Jewish Christians. Are these guys, you know, in the same club we are? Or do they have the same requirements we have, and no more? Uh, so I mean, it was it was a big thing when finally the Gentiles also were allowed to come in, and that may be the distinction he's making between verse twelve and thirteen. I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. Now that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, Oliver. Hey, thanks hey, for your thank call, you. brother. Good talking to you. All right, our next caller is uh, Ezzy, or Ease. <laughs> I guess it's Ezzy yeah. from, e from Eze, Georgia. Eze. Hi, welcome. Yes. Eze. Thank you, okay. Steve, for taking my call. Sure. Okay. I'm just going to ask a question, then I'm going to drop and listen. Okay. There are several instances in the Bible where it says, I will you know, about Israel. I will bless those who bless you, and whomever curses you, I will curse. Yeah. What does that actually mean? Okay. Yeah, and uh, I'll be glad to address that. Um, God first says that to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, he also says it about Israel in general in, in a prophecy of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balaam also repeats that principle, only applying it to the nation of Israel. It means, of course, that God's people are under his special, special care and special protection and special vindication. When they are righteous, then those, uh, then those who afflict them will have to face God's affliction. And those who bless them or who do them good uh, God will favor those people that do that. A little bit like when Jesus said on a slightly different subject about his brethren, the church, inasmuch as you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. Uh, when, when God has a people that he's so identified with as his own people, then whatever is done to them, he takes it as done to him and, and, he, uh, and he responds as if it was done to him. So if someone cursed Israel when they were God's obedient people, uh, he was identified with them, and he took that as them cursing him, and he cursed them back. And that'd be a lot worse for them than it was for God. Uh, so that's kind of God's policy. He stands with his people. Now, of course, this doesn't mean this doesn't mean it applies to all people who are descended from the Jews, uh, no matter what state they're in spiritually, because we know that the uh, the apostles, uh, not the apostles, the prophets of the Old Testament, uh, condemned Israel on multiple occasions for their wickedness because they were apostate from God. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses told them, you know, if you're obedient to God, you'll be blessed in this way, that way, in every which way. But if you're disobedient, you'll be cursed. God will, you know, you'll come under God's curse. And you'll be cursed in all the same ways you would have otherwise been blessed. And, and all these curses will come upon you. And uh, so... In other words, Israel uh, isn't, uh, re regardless of their spiritual condition, always under that kind of uh, protection from God. Uh, sometimes they've been in conditions where God himself brought judgment on them. But when they are his obedient people, uh, he was saying, then he will, uh, he'll stand with them against their enemies 
and uh, and with their allies, and they'll he'll bless their allies and and uh, do harm to their enemies, and we do see that being the case in the Old Testament. And for example, when when Israel became enemies of God themselves, uh, those who afflicted them, the Babylonians, came with the the blessing of God on that invasion. Likewise, even the Assyrians, who were also pagans and who were worthy of judgment, God used them to punish the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 because that northern kingdom had violated God's covenant, had become idolaters and so forth. So, And God, as it were, gave victory to the Assyrians in that case and to the Babylonians later and to the Romans later on in 70 AD. This was bringing a curse on Israel and, as it were, standing with their enemies for the moment. Because God stands with those who are with him. And he stands against those who are against him. The way he states it in First Samuel chapter 2 was, Those who honor me I will honor, and those, uh, and those who lightly esteem me I will despise. And so that Israel didn't have some kind of an unconditional promise that God would always stand with the people who stood with them and stand against those who stand against them. It's assuming Israel's faithful to God, then they stand under these protections of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, uh, you know, some people like to apply that promise today, but we don't have today uh, a nation of Israel that's obedient to God. Uh, the nation of Israel today probably is no more obedient to God than they were before God sent the Romans in in 70 AD. I mean, there's a, there was a remnant in, in Jerusalem, for example, in, in 70 AD. God had a remnant of Jewish people in Israel who were f- faithful followers of Christ, and they escaped the, the problems, but the rest of the nation came under God's curse. And um, today, the remnant of Jews who are in Israel, who follow Christ, is probably smaller than the remnant was in Jerusalem when the Romans came. So, I mean, there's, and the rest of Israel is either secular or still rejecting Christ because they follow the religion of the Pharisees. And it was, of course, the religion of the Pharisees that got Israel destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, so, the point I'm making is the nation of Israel today is no more obedient to God than they were in the days uh, of the apostles when, when God came and, and judged them. So it would be very strange to say, well, what God said about blessing those who bless you and cursing those who curse you somehow applies to the modern nation of Israel. Now, if the modern nation of Israel should turn to God and truly become faithful to him by following Christ, uh, you know, then we could talk about there being a parallel to that. But uh, really, the situation in Israel today, in terms of uh, faithfulness to Christ, uh, less than 1% of the population of Israel are Christians, whereas in the years after the crucifixion, before 70 AD, I'm sure the population of Jerusalem that were Christians was larger than 1%. There were tens of thousands of them, the Bible suggests. And so, um, you know, it's it's a promise that was made to God's faithful people. And uh, there aren't any people like that today who are God's faithful people as a nation though there is the body of Christ, which is made up of the, rem- the faithful remnant of Israel and the Gentiles that have been uh, grafted in with them. So it would seem like that would be the people to which such promises would be expected to, uh, to apply.
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you so much for calling. Good talking to you. Uh, Vicky, also from Georgia. I think that, I think we had three calls from Georgia today. That's unusual. Hi, Vicky. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Uh, you just addressed the once saved, always uh, thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, I was taught that you can not necessarily lose your. Maybe you can lose it. Maybe you just threw it away. But it, it was cited to me the parable about the man that was at the wedding without a wedding garment, and he was uh-huh. asked, "Why are you here without a wedding garment?" And he was surprised. It says in there that he was surprised. They didn't waste any time of binding him up and throwing him out as far away as he could go. Well, the way I understand it, the way it was explained to me, is that this person really did think he had salvation, but he never took it seriously. And because he didn't take it seriously, because it says in the book, you you believe in God and you follow my commandments. I read that in there, so I know it's true. So I don't think this man had anything taken from him. He just let it slide through his fingers, and God wants us to be serious. I just wonder if you will comment on that, because I never hear anybody anymore talk about that parable meaning that. Well, well, I, I talk about that parable. I, I pretty much uh, agree with you as to that being its meaning. There's also, of course, what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he said that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and we cast out demons in your name and we did mighty works in your name and he said i'll say i never knew you depart from me you know you cursed uh so obviously there are people who think they are christians um and even have some you know evidence that convinces them that they're christians but they're not christians and of course in that same passage which is in matthew 7 jesus said not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. So there are apparently a lot of people who would say, Lord, Lord, and therefore think themselves Christians. But Jesus said many of them, I'll have to say, I never knew you. Even though they prophesied and cast out demons and did mighty works in his name, he said, I, yeah, well, many many will be in that category, and I'll say I never knew you. Now, of course, that's, that doesn't really address the question of whether one can lose their salvation. Because those are cases where he says they weren't saved. He never knew them. They were not ever Christians. Probably the man without the wedding garment, likewise, was never a Christian. And therefore, it's irrelevant to the question of whether a Christian can lose their salvation. We'd have to determine that doctrine from passages that are talking about that. But uh, sometimes people bring up those passages, the one you brought up and the one I just brought up, and say, see, you can't lose your salvation because if you aren't saved in the end, you never were. Well... Those passages don't say that. Those passages tell us about people who think they're saved and aren't. And I think everyone, no matter what our theology is, we all agree there are people who think they're saved and aren't. Uh, The question is, what about those who think they are and really are, but then they apostatize? That'd be a different story. And neither, frankly, neither of those passages address that particular uh, type of person. It's uh, a different group that's talking about than that. All right, let's talk to... uh, Junior from Virginia. Hey, haven't heard from you for a while, Junior. How you doing? Hey, hey, hey. God bless you. Um, yeah, I've always, I, as usual, I always listen to you on my way to work every single morning. And but listening to you on the radio is kind of hard because um, you know on YouTube Live. But as of recently. But anyways, um, my question for today is um, was a long due question, and that is uh, what is the difference between 
an angel and a seraphim? Um, sorry if that's a dumb question, but um, seraphim, is yeah. there a difference and what's the difference? Well, there's apparently a variety of beings that are not earthly beings that are in heaven and that surround God on the throne. Uh, there are cherubim, there are seraphim, and there are angels. Now, it, when John is, the seraphim are, by the way, mentioned uh, by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He describes them as having uh, six wings, for example, um, and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, the cherubim, another kind of being, apparently, are described in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, and they have four faces, you know, one of a lion, one of a, uh, an eagle, one of a man, one of a ox, and they, have, they only have four wings. Uh, but the, the living creatures that are described in Revelation are kind of a combination of the two. They've got the, they've got the uh, I think they have the six wings of the seraphim, and they say, holy, 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 like the seraphim did in Isaiah, but they also have the four faces uh, of the cherubim from Ezekiel. And yet the cherubim and seraphim apparently are different beings because they're not described the same. They don't have the same number of wings, for example. Um, so we, we, I have to say, you know, in heaven there are multiple species of beings, just like there are multiple species of creatures that God made on earth. Um, there are seraphim, there are cherubim. There might be something that's kind of a, like both of them, the, the, the four living creatures in Revelation, unless Revelation is symbolically just describing uh, heavenly hosts combining features of both groups. But, but in any case, Revelation... Uh, chapters uh, 4 and 5, um, describe the four living creatures, which again have some features of the cherubim, some of the seraphim, but they also distinguish them from the angels because you've got the, the 24 elders, you've got the four living creatures, and you find them at the end of chapter 4 uh, or 5, excuse me, singing and praising God, uh, and, and actually in chapter 4 as well. Uh, but then it says, then they're joined by all kinds of angels with them. Now, the word angels means messengers. The word uh, angelos in the Greek and the Hebrew word also uh, has the same meaning. It means messengers. And uh, so whenever you find the word angel in the Bible, whether it's the Old or the New Testament, it's actually in the Hebrew or the Greek, the word for messenger. Obviously, messengers can be human messengers, and that word is used for that kind of messengers, too. Uh, like the the two men that John the Baptist sent from his prison to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Uh, I think it's Luke's gospel refers to them as angeloi or angels. Uh, it's an ordinary word for messengers. But obviously in certain contexts, a lot of contexts in the Bible, an angel or a messenger is not a human one, but a, one from heaven. So there are these, these uh, heavenly messengers that are called angels. There are these other creatures, too. And how many others besides, I have no idea. Um, and as far as what the differences are, uh, I'm not sure I could answer that because I've never never actually been to heaven to, to see them and, and see the differences. It would, I could say this, that angels, when they appear, usually look human. They're, at least in their appearances to people, they look like people. Whereas the living creatures, the seraphim and the cherubim, uh, they... They don't look like people. They, I mean, maybe in some respects, but they have wings and faces of animals and things like that. So obviously they are different. Now, if you want to know what's the difference in their function, 
That I cannot say, except that the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 seem to be like the throne attendants uh, at God's chariot, maybe the footmen or something that run along at the four corners of the platform that his chariot is sitting on in Ezekiel 1. So they might be sort of like a bodyguard, or not that God needs one, but just sort of the trappings of royalty, having, having these attendants around him. Uh, the seraphim are described only in terms of their worship in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, so it may be that they have different functions. Maybe the cherubim are uh, like throne attendants of some kind, and the seraphim are simply worshipers, uh, singers. Uh, but, I mean, we have very little information on them, and so this is... What I just said is a is just drawn from the the full amount of information that's there, but they may have very different functions than we know about. They might have far more than we know about. You know? Hello? Hello. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Just a quick follow up question. Given your response, does it, and given what I've read in math, no, in Acts. One of the angels said to, um, I think, Mary or Martha that says, don't be, don't be afraid. Or many times the angel says, you know, don't be afraid. So it seems as though that the angels may seem human, may look human, but maybe scary looking. Is that fair to say? Well, it's, it's probably fair to say. Uh, I mean, I don't think they look like monsters. I think that uh, they might be, they might appear as humans somewhat larger than average. They might have a bit of a radiance about them that makes them eerie. Uh, we aren't told. Uh, or it may just be that, you know, people like Mary seeing a strange man in a room uh, be a bit alarmed ah. until he's told, hey, don't worry, it's not, <laughs> it's not what you think. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, angels, you know, they're, they're always, when they appear, they're always described as a man, uh, meaning they yeah. have the appearance of a man. Um, but, but I mean, they might be fierce-looking men or you know, strong-looking men or big, bigger-than-average men or glowing men. I mean, I don't really know. Um, but apparently, when they are recognized as angels, whatever causes a person to recognize that they are angels, uh, they, the first thing they inspire, apparently, is fear. Uh, not so much fear like, uh-oh, I'm going to die, but a different kind of fear. C.S. Lewis likes to talk about the different kinds of fear uh, you know, between, for example, the fear of a tiger or the fear of a ghost. He says, you know, if I told you there's a tiger in the other room, you'd be afraid to go in there because the tiger will actually do you some harm. He said if he said there's a ghost in that room and you believed it, you'd still probably not want to go in that room. Uh, you'd have some fear, but not because a ghost is known to do any harm to people, but because it's a... It's spooky, you know. It's it's like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know surreal. It's it's ethereal. It's it's, it's in the realm of the unknown, and uh, that's that kind of fear is uh, fear of what they call the numinous, which is not it's not something that's known to be dangerous, but just something that's otherworldly and therefore kind of spooky. And so that might be why the angels say, "Don't be afraid. I'm an angel." But hey, you know, don't worry. It's, it's cool. I see. All right. Well, thank you very much. I hope I get to see you this year. Have a good one. God yeah. bless. Thanks, Junior. Good talking to you again. God bless you. Uh, Chris from Massachusetts, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you. I am a recipient of the manifold grace of, of Jesus Christ. Having been a sinner, and I'm, I'm I, in marveling as I am a work of repentance, and I, I think that you know, if God had pardoned me 
without repentance, then I would have no impetus to stop sinning. And if you could expand upon this marvelous gift of mercy, which he is making known to me in my life and helping me to in my home, it, I'd appreciate it, Steve. And I'll hang up and I'll listen to you on the, as I always do on the air. Thank you. Okay, okay, Chris. Thanks for your call. Um, well, repentance is required uh, in order to experience that manifold grace of God that you talked about. Uh, a lot of people say, no, if you have to repent, then that makes it a matter of works and not grace. You know, you, you, then you're earning it. But but repenting isn't a work. It results in works, but it's it itself is not a work. The word repent just means to change your mind. So if at one point my mind is, I'm living for myself. I'm living for, to follow my own agendas. I'm living to please myself. I'm living to reach my own goals that I've set for myself, follow my dreams. Well, then, if, I, if I'm going to become a Christian, I have to change my mind, which is what the word repent means. I have to change my mind and say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be seeking my own goals. I'm not going to be seeking to fulfill my dreams. I, I'm seeking to do the will of God for my life, which may or may not be as attractive to me as my own dreams. They may be much less, maybe much more difficult, but I'm not going to follow my way, but God's. Now, that's repentance. You can't, uh, you can't experience a relationship with God, which, which is where that grace is coming from, unless you have come around to agree that you're going to be in that kind of relationship with God. Uh, a relationship with God has always got to be a relationship of submission, because he's a king and a lord. He's not just a pal. We have relationships with friends that we don't have to submit to, but a relationship with a king, you got no choice. you got to submit or you're a rebel. When you do, change your mind and repent about that and say, I'm going to serve and please him, not me from now on. That's when you, are, you become a believer. That's when you become a disciple. That's when you come into relationship with God properly and that grace pours into your life and you experience it as you've just testified. Yeah, I'm out of time. I wish I wasn't. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. We are listener supported. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730. Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Let's talk again soon.